Jetty folk take care of Jetty folk. And if you ever have a chance to lick a coyote on the nose, I would really recommend it as an outdoor activity. You should have seen that fish run. And I was like, man, first off, don't ever buy a gun at Stop and Go. And if you do, don't buy it for 20 bucks. <laughs> You're like a superstar because everybody who's on the jetties watching comes down and wants to take a picture with your fish. Like, they want to hold the fish and act like they caught it. And then they, like, are clapping and everything whenever you reel the fish in. So science in the sea, you can just dot org. You can look up that website. And yeah, or scienceinthesea.com. Or dot net. All three of those. Who decides what uh, what content goes in there? I do. You do. Mm-hmm. And do you do all? Do you get have guests? No, no, it, no, no. Ours is all scripted. It's all scripted. So I have, uh, you know, I pick a topic, and my scriptwriter, I have a professional scriptwriter. He writes all the scripts, sends it back to us. We do the fact checking on it. And then we go to the studio to record with a, a professional voice talent. Really? Yeah. And so we've give, been doing it for over 10 years. I want to look that up. <laughs> give me give me a good example of of, of one that recent or one that that sticks out in your mind. Oh, I, <laughs> I don't think I can do that. <laughs> we've got over 500 of them. <laughs> in fact, I'm going to the studio on Wednesday, uh, Thursday this week in Austin to record the next 13 episodes. Oh, so you just go knock a bunch out? Yeah, we we knock uh, three months out at a time. Oh, nice. We do fifty-two a year. So that's a good good thing to listen to for just just really quick message. Oh yeah, yeah. And it's applied like towards. No, it's just marine science and almost any topic at all in marine science, and not just marine biology. It's just basically everything you could possibly think of. And you can go to our website and just do a search for any word or set of words that you're interested in, and it'll pop up all the pd all the uh, podcasts that we've done on that subject and you can listen to them there sweet we'll yeah, check really that out nice. yeah so if you so have you ideas for podcasts let me know and we can do some okay that'd be it'd be interesting to, to have some where it was um where like the angler something that would apply to them you know like We're, yeah we know. uh we also have uh science and sea also has a monthly text uh, article magazine column that we've been publishing even longer than the podcast and you may have seen I've that seen that in um, saltwater saltwater uh, connections yes texas saltwater texas fishing. saltwater fishermen yeah. everett yeah. johnson everett yeah, yeah. we've yeah. been doing that for about 11 or 12 years yeah i always look forward to those it's the same thing same size script it's okay. exactly the same amount of material i feel like it takes me longer than two minutes to read it for some reason well that's why we have professionals <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're at the University of Texas Marine Science Institute. Welcome to the podcast, folks. Um, I'm here with Jeff Kaiser and Dr. Lee Fuman. That's how you say it, right? Yep, that's it. I've right. always wondered if, like, if I was saying it wrong, like right. Fuman or Fuman. <laughs> yeah, right. I want to make sure. I... You got it. <laughs> so, yeah, we're, we're here at, uh, at, at Dr. Fuman's lab, and I've um, known Jeff for, for quite some time, and um, we both went to the same graduate school at different times. And um, gotten to know Dr. Fuman over the past um, several years. We uh, we're all kind of uh, similarly linked in uh, fisheries through aquaculture. Um, some on the applied side and some on the um, scientific side. So, thank both of you for doing this. Appreciate it. I think folks are going to be really interested in what you'll have to share. I hope so. so. Uh, why don't we start with a little background and uh, let us know a little bit about yourself, your uh, your um, where you grew up, you know, what you did in school in your formative years and how you got to be where you are now. Well, I, uh, I'm from Philadelphia originally, and uh, ever since I was oh, probably five years old, I've been a tropical fish hobbyist. So I've always had uh, fish in my home and decided I enjoyed it so much I was going to make a career out of it. Went off to, gradu- uh, to uh, college to become a marine biologist and study fish that way. And then I went off to graduate school into fisheries, and I got a master's in fishery science and my Ph.D. in fishery science. In both of those um, programs, I was working in freshwater, so I have both a freshwater and marine background. And then uh, went off to do a postdoc in Scotland for a couple of years and got the job here at University of Texas right out of that, and I've been here for 30 years. Where'd you go to, uh, where'd you get your uh, graduate 
degrees from? Well, my master's in fisheries is at Cor from Cornell University, and my PhD is from University of Michigan. And how long were you in Scotland? Two years. Two years. And you've been here since? Yep. It's a good place to end up. <laughs> sure <laughs> is. <isn't> nice. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, uh, when I got the job offer here, uh, you know, I quickly agreed to take it, but... Uh, I knew at that time and still believe it's the best place that I could have possibly have landed in the United States because of our ability here at the University of Texas Marine Science Institute to have uh, fish eggs and fish larvae available year-round for experimental work, and that was the crux of the research that I've been doing here for 30 years. Yeah, you're not seasonally limited. Here. That's, right. You're, That's right. There's always something you can be working on. That's right. All right, Jeff, give Porter. us your bio. The bio. <laughs> I was the middle school kid with coffee table books that had fish and would flip through them all day long. So real similar to what Dr. Fuman said. Just don't remember a time I wasn't consumed with fish, fishing, everything to do with them. So uh, as you mentioned, enjoyed doing uh, graduate school 20 miles away at A&M Corpus and uh, 95 and didn't figure on spending 20 and 25 years messing with fish. <laughs> but here we sit. All of us, for that matter. Yeah. So anyway, I think uh, just got hooked at an early age and enjoyed some aquaculture projects uh, in the Gulf that were very unique and then uh, have been here. Uh, I overlapped with uh, Dr. Connie Arnold for one year, which was really exciting just because he's really uh, one of the pioneers in our field and have had the wonderful opportunity to work with Dr. Fuman, Dr. Joan Holt as well. And so it's just been a great uh, 17 years. Yeah, man, I would say that you've been fortunate to just to have um, right. some heavy hitters very heavy hitters smart careers. people good to work with just uh it's an amazing place and the history here you know 40 years ago they were spawning fish in port aransas at, at the fisheries and mariculture lab here for the first time anywhere it's redfish trout and flounder and uh, red snapper for that matter and it's just amazing it's an amazing place and a lot of people don't even have any idea that, that went on and of course then it parlayed into parks and wildlife being extremely successful over decades so texas really has the marine fish uh, thing figured out and it's been wonderful so to be a small part of it yeah and uh, the, the the location of this place is you couldn't get much better right uh, from terms of in terms of water quality and what yeah, you're able I mean, to the resources you have here i think right. they're just just really really good um why did you get into Why'd you, what made you want to go to the mariculture program? Um, I visited down uh, at the campus with Dr. McKee and uh, just really fell in love with the area and, and uh, wanted to be along the coast as well and enjoyed warm water fish. I had worked at a, at a trout farm for a, a little while and then worked with Parks and Wildlife for a little while and just it was a very natural thing to come down and love the Corpus area personally and uh Thoroughly enjoyed the program and then finished that in the mid-90s and started in on some projects. And just, I think everybody tries to figure out what they're going to do with their 8 to 12 hours every day when you get up. And I just enjoy trying to figure out how to work with marine fish, how to make them do what you want, how to contribute to the knowledge base, whether it's cobia or flounder or any of these other fish, and put it out into industry, put it out into science. Um, it's very it's a big, it's a challenge. You don't show up at work each day and everything works out. As you know, having managed up there, I mean, it's a constant challenge. So the day gets boring, you know, it just doesn't. Yeah. So. Yeah. There's still a picture of you hanging on the wall at sea center. I don't know if you I know used that. to mow that place. Yeah. <laughs> there was nothing there. They kept saying there's going to be a wonderful hatchery. And I was like, really? And I just kept on mowing <laughs> <laughs> on an old tractor. It was hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're, in, I think, in the ponds that you used to have at Dow. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. you're hauling a big net yeah, of fish out yeah. of the water there. Yeah. The you don't Dow. look much different. Shoot. <laughs> I feel different. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about uh, FAMIL. And you mentioned that's fisheries and mariculture laboratory. Yep, that's it. That's it. Um, so what are, some of the, what are some of the things that, that you guys do out here? You mean the active what, projects? Re projects, research projects, yeah. Well, we always have something going on with redfish because, you know, we have them on tap, really, you know, spawning year-round, and that provides a great opportunity for us to look at all sorts of interesting questions, whether they're physiological or not so much aquaculture anymore, but to some extent, uh, we're doing some uh, work on adult diets and how they influence the metabolism and, and uh, performance of larvae. 
but that's really useful not only for understanding red drum, but also for looking at how uh, widespread the effects we are finding in other species. So if we find something interesting in redfish, we want to know if it's um, also happening in another species. So we have other species here that we're working with. Uh, flounder, for instance, southern flounder. We're working on those, f trying to follow up on some research that we did on red drum. So, for instance, um, we discovered in red drum that egg quality has a lot to do with what you feed the adult fish. The question is when during the uh, adult period is does the diet affect the egg composition? In red drum, it turns out that what they're eating while they're spawning during the same season has a big role in, in egg quality, which then translates into uh, larval quality. And we found that <coughs> if you change the diet on a red drum during the spawning season, that the eggs will change during the spawning season within as little as a couple of weeks. So the, those nutrients are immediately available to the eggs. It looks that way, yeah, which was a big surprise. We, we kind of thought, especially uh, when we talked to other biologists who were interested in fish reproduction, we kind of thought that when a fish is uh, building eggs, it's using its body's stores of nutrients that it has in its liver and other parts of its body and drawing on those to make eggs so that if the diet changed during the spawning season, it wouldn't matter because they're drawing upon their body supplies. It turns out for red drum during the spawning season, that's not true. Uh, that what you're feeding them is what they put into the eggs. And if you change what they're, you're feeding them, you get something different. So that has really important implications for um, how we manage broodstock to produce fish for stocking, for instance. You know, you want to produce the best quality eggs so that the larvae are, have the characteristics that they need to survive. And so we, uh, we now know how better to feed red drum. So the the next question is, does that apply to other species? And we're now just beginning our work in flounder to see if that's true of flounder too. So um, I guess in, in general terms, you don't have to get too specific, but what is what is best for red drum while they're spawning? Is it something high oil content, um, mackerel, squid? I mean, what? Well, it's we're not we're not looking at. Uh, um, we're not looking at general characteristics like oil or um, or protein. We're looking at very specific things like essential fatty acids, right? So there's a couple of essential fatty acids that we know are very important for normal development of embryos and larvae. Things like DHA and EPA and ARA. That's shorthand for their long, cumbersome terms. And so we're looking at what the concentrations of those should be in the adult diet in order to get better quality eggs. And we can do that by changing the amount of mackerel or squid or whatever you're feeding to the adult fish. And are you, have you figured it out for flounder yet, or you're still in that no, process? No, no, we're very beginning stages okay. of flounder, just trying to see if we change the diet in flounder, whether or not it changes the eggs, and if so, at what time during the maturation phase does it matter to flounder? It may not be anything like it is for red drum. It may be that those guys do actually draw off their bodies of stores. We just don't know. So we're just at the beginning phases right now to, to play catch up with what we already know about redfish. So for the rest of the year for redfish when they're not spawning, does, I mean, can you, you can just put them on a general maintenance diet. They don't need anything special to prepare them to spawn. Well, that's what it's looking like. In fact, we had a we had proposed uh, a, a what we think is a more efficient strategy, a cost-efficient strategy for getting uh, redfish uh, ready for reproduction and through the spawning season, so that we could reduce, for instance, the use of marine products in the diet of the adult fish. You know, harvesting marine products to to feed to fish is not a very uh, yeah. wise thing to do uh, e ecologically. And so we're proposing, with this knowledge that we gained about the transfer of nutrients from the diet to eggs in red drum, that outside of the normal spawning season, you could probably feed them a land-based crop diet, you know, corn-based or soy-based mm -hmm. or something like that, something that's sustainable, environmentally sustainable, and that you could do that for quite a long time. And then... Uh, switch over to a marine-based product that has all the essential fatty acids that are important for the eggs to have a high enough quality to survive, Switch, make that switch relatively late in the annual cycle, 
to get them up to high quality eggs relatively quickly and then back off a little bit during the spawning season into uh, a less rich diet, just something that will maintain the eggs at a constant level. So we have that all proposed and now it's just a matter of getting the funding and doing the research to show that that does work. We fed, we fed some, it was, it, it was fish meal based, but we went to a pellet, we tried some pellets, um, commercially, commercial diets um, for red drum. And uh, we were able to get the fish to spawn and, and, and had some decent returns, um, egg, egg hatchings and larval returns. But, man, that wrecked our our filtration system. Water we, we weren't prepared for um, – and, and it may have been a result of overfeeding or, or um, really not paying attention to how much mm-hmm. – when they stopped eating, you've got to you've got to stop. You can't yeah. add any extra. How pellets big were the pellets? Because we had some nineteen millimeters. They were like eighteen, nineteen. Yeah, I mean, they were, yeah. um, you know, between a nickel and a quarter. Yeah. Diameter. Did you and you had pretty good results? You thought with the yeah. Okay. Now we um, multi year or just the one? Because if they have one a, season. see if they have the stores built up and then the pellets. Because we we had some interesting issues with pellets. Not to say it doesn't work, but with some cobia and other fish, where it seemed like. It was not that we didn't see, you didn't see a good result, and it was anecdotal. But yeah, for us, I mean, far we had far greater success with with uh, feeding high squid and high mackerel um, during spawning season. But no liver, <laughs> no liver. <laughs> <laughs> we cut that out. Um, I still do a little bit. It's got to be good for your filters. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't make it to the filter. It's funny they end up they they eat the liver, and then you go back two hours later and they've regurgitated most of it then it yeah. gets to the filter and then it <laughs> 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 but yeah if you're if you you got to be careful with those pellets um the way they break down uh, if the fish don't eat them then you know it'd be it'd been good to have something before the sand filter yeah. to catch some of that stuff but anyways um so what are some other research uh interests that that you have here well one of the big things we're working on now is uh trying to develop commercial aquaculture technology for bait fish you know, we, um, in particular, the bait fish that we're looking at is called the pigfish. It's quite popular locally and uh, used in at lower levels in other areas. But uh, it became quite clear that uh, there's a limited supply of these bait fish locally during the season that they're available. And, of course, they're only available for about three months a year. So uh, it seemed like an opportunity to supply the sport fishermen with more bait. And uh, so we started messing around with pigfish, and they turned out to be... Uh, pretty amenable to aquaculture and and uh, so we decided to put some more effort into it and things are going pretty well they they don't seem to be cannibalistic they can grow from egg to market in about three months which is an amazingly fast uh, time for a commercially produced product and uh, it commands a high price uh, for an aquaculture organism so we think that there's a lot of potential there for uh, industry to develop an industry that really doesn't exist yet and there is a locally there is a lot of interest in seeing something like this um, become established i mean y'all have bait shops that i don't know if y'all can actually provide them with any from this laboratory but you have bait shops that have said hey if this ever things ever get if this ever gets going i want in well we have actually provided them you know when we uh when we finish our experiments on them and and their you know market size uh, we just turn them over to the local bait stands to see if if the uh the fishermen will buy them and use them and and if they perform well as as bait and so far the 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 messages that we've gotten back is everything's pretty good so what are they we were talking uh, before we started recording what what do they catch i mean what are they what do they bring at the bait stand? How many? Uh, I think they're about a dozen? eight dollars a dozen. Yeah, it's between eight and ten usually is what you'll see. And during summertime, when there's a big demand and not as much, you'll see prices sometimes approach ten, eleven dollars. I mean, wow. you're talking about you know fifty to fifty cents to a dollar on a fish that you can raise potentially, like I said, in about three months. So it bait is really interesting. A lot of people, you know, like you all have been around aquaculture a long time, and you're always thinking about fillets and you're thinking about you know, large marine fish and whatever, but bait really has some aspects to it that are interesting. And we're doing a lot of work with them. We are working with a uh, producer up the coast. And there is, I think commercial interest, of course, follows depending on how 
how well the results from our you know research goes so investment looks for good ideas so until yeah. we have some stuff ironed out you know it's it's small scale right now but it's very interesting yeah so we're working out the details of aquaculture in the laboratory we're working with a, a <clears throat> farmer up the coast to uh to see if it scales up to commercial levels and then we also have an economist working on it to make sure that that it works out from an economic point of view for the for the farmer um they go from a hatchery setting uh, to a larval tank and then into the pond is that the yeah process yeah. For, for pig fish yeah and how how long are they in indoors in an indoor setting before they reach the pond i is think it? about a month okay so yeah. one month indoors yeah it's kind of similar to well, flounder the, well but that's because the way we're working right now is we're going from uh from laboratory into cages in ponds and it wouldn't be practical to put smaller fish in cages because you know the yeah. mesh would have to be so small that it would foul up too quickly. But, um, and, and I think part of the reason for the cage work is because we're working on relatively small scale, even though we're on the farm, and the ponds are being used for other production purposes, right? So we need to grow out some fish over a short period of time and harvest them out of a pond where other things are growing. So um, I think in the long run, it's probably going to be larvae in the ponds and growing and out all the way. So are the ca- they individually fed in the cages, or are they just eating plankton that's passing through? The- no, they're feeding. Yeah, they're being fed. They're being fed. Yeah, and I'm sure they are eating some of the passes. Yeah. <laughs> they're pretty yeah. voracious. Mm-hmm. It'd be, I'd, I'm really interested in that. We were also speaking before, because it'd be neat to see, and there would have to be an education component to this, because people are so, it's entrenched in their mind, bait fishermen, it's either mullet or croaker or mud minnows. You know, a lot of people don't use pigfish anymore. They used to. So there would have to be that kind of uh, yeah. Bait fish is interesting because everybody has you know you go to any bait stand and or talk to people that've been around forever and there's just there's all kinds of opinions on it. You know there's and ask somebody that fished a long time. You know if you're going to go to Bath and it's a big weekend, are you going to take three dozen piggies, three dozen croaker? And the really good fishermen said, I'm taking three dozen of each <laughs> because you got to you know and you're, the bite changes and the yeah. bite changes during the summer and guys switch from croaker to piggies at some point there's that overlap period the bottom line is when there's no live bait available at some of these places they're buying anything that's available that's live and these these guys don't pull up and buy one or two dozen they buy eight and ten dozen and they put them in oxygen with pure oxygen in their live wells it's a big business now it is not uh it's amazing as you know i mean the expenditures on yeah, they're taking a thousand dollars worth of bait with them for but if they're fishing two or three days and they're gonna make five or six hundred a day or whatever, I mean, you know, it has gotten to the point of just it's amazing to wow. see what goes on now with marine recreational marine fishing in Texas is just this big industry, and we see it every day. You know, boats driving around, and uh, it's just an amazing thing that goes on. And I think live bait down the road could play a pretty big role, and being able to produce a live bait <clears throat> could really be advantageous. Yeah. Um, I know that it was tried with with bait shrimp, but there's that whole other issue of um, you know shrimp culture is just so complicated, and with with bait shrimp in Texas, the native species just grow so slowly, it's hard to get them to market size within the year. Um, um, let's. Uh, why don't you talk about that? Uh, any other research with Southern Flounder? The larva culture research that you guys have been doing out here? Can we? touch on that i mean where's cindy right (laughs) (laughs) we're we're missing we're missing a key component i I think uh so cindy falk does a lot of the larval research and write-ups and all that and so just to go back 1978 you know 77 78 spawned in that time frame from december into january and that was uh with dr arnold and then we revisited southern flounder in about oh two and we have not really stopped since. So it's been about another 15 years here of working with Southern Flounder. And it typically it entailed acquiring them from the wild, bringing them in, and getting natural spawns in a tank and or doing hormone-induced spawns and then taking those eggs and working with them and working in conjunction with Parks and Wildlife. And uh, so it's been another 15 years of working with them. And, of course, the group, Cindy and everybody else, has produced a number of papers about various larval survival and 
um, larval nutrition, larval development, southern flounder, yeah. along with a lot of the great work that has come out of North Carolina. There's there's lab up there, just spectacular work over the years. And so I know you visited up there. So uh, southern flounder is an interesting fish to work with, um, and we've got a lot of them right now. In fact, we were working with some today right before you got here. So wonderful fish to work with, as you know. And I hope I hope down the road that it lends itself to be something that Parks and Wildlife pursues more with the stock. And I know they're very interested in it. It does have its challenges, as you know. Yeah. A lot of them. So. Yeah, it's, uh, it is, it's, you know, it's, it's a challenging larval fish to, to work with for sure. But it's, um, I think that the techniques have, at least within, within the Parks and Wildlife side, techniques have gotten better because of the research that has come out of this place as, with regards to temperature tolerances. Yeah. Um, during those first uh, two to three weeks. And so, um, um, it's important work because yeah. it has real world applications uh, yeah. to it's, the aquaculture It's industry. great uh, working with Parks and Wildlife. We're on the phone with them every single week, whether it's Sea Center, Marine Development Center, and Corpus. So it's a great relationship. I mean, that's, you know, our goal is to put stuff out there that is helpful and applicable. And so Parks and Wildlife is just a very natural place to end up with a lot of the data and the information, the contacts. Great organization to work with. Always been that way. So, and we always welcome any feedback from them and like i said it's kind of an every week thing so yeah somebody. <laughs> especially this time of year the other thing is that uh, you know so many of the bottlenecks in aquaculture of these fish are in the larval stages and uh, so we put a lot of work into understanding requirements for larvae and and you know, how to how to grow them and what what you do you need to do to produce the best performing larvae whether it's for stock enhancement or for just for growth or whatever and and you really can't do those kinds of experiments without highly replicated experiments and conditions that can be maintained at very constant levels constant temperature constant salinity and um, and and we have that thanks to cca you know we've got the cca texas laboratory for marine larva culture thanks to a great donation few years back and uh, that enables us to do the work we're doing on redfish on flounder on pigfish just about every species that we have to deal with larvae we work in that building and it's been uh, it's been a great thing for us do y'all have any cobia still in, in the no building we don't have anymore? any cobia no um we have some snook though what's going on with snook well that's kind of a back burner project <laughs> we got so we were working with uh colleagues at moat marine lab in sarasota florida and uh, they're very interested in developing aquaculture for uh, snook in Florida and as a potential for stock enhancement. Uh, and they were having some, some difficulties with um, rearing the early larvae, and they sent some eggs over here. Oh, this was several years ago, wasn't it, Jim? Many years ago, yeah. So we, we have resulting F1 snook swimming around the tank. Oh, they're still here. Oh, yeah, I'll show them to you. They're beautiful. So, so we were able to grow them. The, the problem was that uh, when they were growing them in Florida, they were getting a spinal deformity. And uh, Cindy, who was a magician with growing fish larvae, realized that that was a nutritional problem. She was able to grow them up without the spinal deformity. And so now we have these uh, uh, young, not so young anymore, uh, snook that are uh, getting to be close to mature size. So, so I got to stop you right there. Is that spinal deformity established in the larval yeah. stage? Yeah. And then once it's established, there is no, no. fixing it. Right. Do y'all remember that redfish, the leopard red? That yes, you donate? Pepper. 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 Is it still there? It's still alive at Sea Center. But it's it has spinal. a little bit of a... Oh, it's no, not little anymore. <laughs> it got worse. Huh? How big is it It's much worse. Well, if you're able to flatten him out, he would... He would <laughs> um, I'd say he'd probably be 36, 38 inches. Wow. I mean... It's a nice so fish. So the deformity is pretty. No, it was pretty. Oh, it's an S. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> wow. He is up and down or sideways. Side oh. sideways. Oh. We sideways. We got that fish at probably right at the lower slot, maybe twenty inches. Or Let's whatever. give him the backstory. Yeah. Uh, guy in town, Port Aransas here, calls me up. He says, "Hey, would you be interested?" It was a you know, it was a legal redfish. He was out fishing. He said. Uh, I've got a fish with some spots. We get calls all the time from people with various stories of fish. A guy called me today, you know, parasites in the flesh, and you know what should I do? I'm like, well, don't eat it. I mean, you know, just really nice folks. But anyway, this guy calls me. He's a guide, fishes 150 days a year. He's out there a lot. So I knew when a guy that fishes that many years, that many days a year, says I've never seen anything like it. I'm like, I got to see this. So I said, well, how's that? A few spots. What are you talking about? Ten on the side? He says, no, your stand is covered in spots. 
so I went over there and he has it and uh, we acquired it and put it in the lab and affectionately called it Pepper and then decided it needed to go somewhere where a lot of people could see it like C-Centers when we gave you guys a holler and uh, it was amazing I mean, and then the weird thing was I think it was within 6 or 12 months a guy in the lower Laguna Madre caught one and it was on a magazine cover it might have been Everett's magazine and it was it looked like the twin of that really? fish it was completely covered in spots so oh this would win any tournament that well, had sure. a category for most well, yeah, spots <laughs> it was amazing I'm glad to hear it's still there oh yeah wondering. it's he's I assume it's a guy he's doing great it's a unique story yeah he, yeah so. and and it's a beautiful fish yeah. um, despite its uh, flaws in its <laughs> spine sorry i didn't mean to cut you <laughs> off but that was just an interesting story um spinal deformities larval fish was there anything else where were we going with that thought i don't know <laughs> oh the snook, the snook yeah the snook yeah snook, so now snook. you know we've got some snook that are uh getting close to mature size and you know once they get big enough maybe we'll dabble in snook snook my voice just cracked snook tarpon um cobia those are all kind of like the sexy fish that people want to work with but they don't yeah. understand how difficult yeah. <laughs> the cobia worked out really well that was a really neat 10 years uh i'm not even going to approach tarpon i know you guys i'll let you no, talk about tarpon no. <laughs> rather not right um but yeah cca building has been instrumental i mean we have complete control over salinity temperature lighting i mean it's amazing so for you know you can do an eight-week trial and as long as you keep the mechanical stuff going, it's been really great. We have raised cobia snook, croaker, flounder, um, pigfish, red drum, of course. So just about everything we can get a hold of in the CCA building. We spent a lot of time in there, so that was a that was a really wonderful deal and has resulted in a, a building that for decades is going to hopefully support a lot of great research. So yeah, we were overjoyed when they decided to do that. So. Um, what are some of the challenges with fisheries research that most people wouldn't wouldn't anticipate i know coming from a, like a hatchery setting uh, people see a uh, relatively nice looking building and um, they see all the stuff up front but they don't see the stuff on the back end the the guts of the facility and all the maintenance and the nightmares that are involved around that but it, so do y'all have any anything like that here that um, that's a challenge to maintain or any anything that people need to be aware of and they could possibly donate money to or get involved in, in helping out with? Well, I mean, <clears throat> what's not apparent when you see these operations is the amount of effort it, it takes to keep them going. I mean, not just in terms of maintenance of, of pumps and heaters and lights and all that sort of stuff, but personnel. I mean, you know, if somebody's got to feed the fish, you got to prepare the food. I mean, it takes a, a good number of people to keep these operations going. So just the ongoing expenses of operations are, are pretty significant. Um, you know, food, you have a lot of big fish, as you know, it, it's, that's a lot of food to be buying, especially if you have to buy marine products. Mm -hmm. So there's those kinds of costs. Jeff, do you have any other, uh, well, it's a con, I mean, you, you know, from your experience, it's constant maintenance. And so you, you're putting salt water inside of an enclosed room and you're going to aerate it. So you got some spray and then you create the most corrosive environment you possibly can <laughs> and then put mechanical equipment in. So it's it, every day. I joke, but every every day it seems like the idea is you show up and then immediately find the half a dozen things that have to be done that day because you know there's there is a pump off somewhere and there is a pipe cracking somewhere and there's a valve failing. So I mean every day you kind of show up and make the list and then prioritize the list and thankfully UT has a maintenance crew that's been real helpful. But there are a lot of times where we have to just solve your own problem quickly. And as you know, with things like blowers and critical items, you can't have a blower off for that night and so everything needs to work and uh we've got a few you know things over the years that happened that were big events where you walk in and you have some fish that are dead and it's just anybody that does fish culture long enough whether it's a hatchery or a farm or or a research place you're going to have that happen who gets the call uh <laughs> I, I usually get a call or something <laughs> I, 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 feel, I remember a few frantic calls during the cobia years because there you don't have much time frame flounder you know an aerator can go off and you got hours maybe days and cobia tank there was uh labor day weekend labor day weekend 2001 i'll never forget that i mean we had our first big spawns in 2001 it was the first time in the u.s from sub-adult fish so it was very exciting we were raising the fish and they were up to about a pound and we had hundreds of them in a, in a raceway and we had some issues 
and uh, we ended up losing a bunch of them, and it's a terrible call to get. And uh, and occasionally we'll lose a phase of power, and so we'll have a blower situation, which happened one year. So you just you cross those bridges as they come, and they're going to happen to everybody. They happen to people with pond culture and whatever. I'm sure you have some good stories from Sea Center. Uh, yeah, worst Thanksgiving of my life. One yeah, time. that's what yeah. I'm saying. And it's always a weekend, and it's, <laughs> it's always, always a holiday, holiday one. And it's you get a phone call, and somebody says, you know, what do I do? And you're like, hang on, I'll be there. And you just try to solve it as it comes, you know, and it's yeah. the nature of the beast. So uh, it's the maintenance is, this is a 45-year-old lab. The maintenance is there every single day, and that is uh, is tough to stay up on and uh, because it's only getting harder each day it's only getting older so we we try to along the way keep things rolling but i know you know funding can be an issue so uh, it's great working with groups like cca and and others who look at our work and then are able to make donations it's wonderful I mean, it's yeah well the, big deal it's it's pretty easy to see the value and the research that you are doing because it it is tied back to the resource and so um you know the the data that you are able to, to gather and, and publish and, and, and put out there, the scientists are able to, to use to manage the fishery or or industry, aquaculture industry is able to use. So, I mean, it's important. It really is. Yeah, we talked about the, the facilities and operations side of things, but then there's also the science side and the education side. And, and uh, you know, so we have, you know, all these pieces of scientific equipment that we need to do the measurements that we get from the fish, right? You know, you take samples from the fish, you have to then analyze them. And, uh, so you have that equipment that has costs associated with it. But there's also the personnel on the science side. It's not just the hatchery manager and the people that are feeding and taking care of the fish. There's also the people who are actually doing the research, you know? So in, in here, much of that is done by graduate students, of course, and, and graduate students, uh, they have stipends and they have tuition and fees and so forth. And again, CCAs come through, they provide scholarships that help pay uh, tuition for a couple of our graduate students and that's a that's a very useful thing it helps us uh, accomplish the research that that we need to get done all right so is there um if if, if we have a, a donor out there or someone that's interested in getting involved in in uh, some of the building maintenance or some of the projects you'll have going on out there is there something that uh, someone can assist you with well yeah i mean we always have maintenance uh requirements you know getting things fixed pumps and heat pumps and all sorts of things like that. But we got a uh, really good opportunity for somebody who's interested in helping us out. Uh, we recently had a, a new building put up over some of our tanks. It's about a 5,000-square-foot building, and it's a really great facility. Unfortunately, we, we hadn't um, arranged to have all the plumbing and, uh, and heat pumps and all that put in to, to make the tanks operational, right? So we have... Uh, three large tanks and several smaller tanks in there and, and uh, an opportunity to put even more experimental units in that in this great new building. Uh, but it's uh, it's sitting waiting to be put into operation, so we need support to get that going. What do you what do you estimate something like that's going to cost? Well, it depends. You, guys? you know, the, the, the big picture is probably somewhere around fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 or something like that. Uh, that'll get the whole thing in operation. We could turn key, get it get it get it running in no time with that kind of donation but even small amounts of money can be used to uh to make a dent in the in the list of things that need to be done there and so how how would someone go about um uh, doing that would they contact the university or contact you or like yeah well we the uh, university of course is uh is the owner of the property and they manage it, of course, and they also take all the donations. So ultimately, it would go through the university for sure. But if they want more information about specific needs or uh, they want to just discuss possibilities, I'd be happy to chat with them. Okay. And they can email you? Yeah, absolutely. And so, you mind if I... Yeah, that's uh, lee.fuman at utexas.edu. That's l-e-e dot f-u-i-m-a-n at u-t-e-x-a-s dot edu. And do y'all have any sort of friends group or any, anything akin to that, that that helps raise funds for the lab, or is it all um, mostly grant money? And well, by you know, by far the the active science done here is is grant money. You know, pigfish work, for instance, being funded by a couple of grants from NOAA, one from Sea Grant, one from Salton Stall Kennedy. Um, so we're looking for National Science Foundation funding for some of the. Uh, physiological work we've got uh, had we have had epa funding and so forth so yeah there's there's mostly grants that support the, what goes on here 
And is there any way for people to, um, to, I guess, is there a page on your, on, is there a lab dedicated website where people can go and find out about research that has been done or that has been published? Yeah, Seth, there is a, a, a subset of pages of the University of Texas Marine Science Institute website that is about the Fisheries and Mariculture Lab or FAML. Those pages do exist. Yeah. Okay. And y'all do tours? I saw a group. Yeah, we have out, we occasionally out in the parking lot a moment ago. Yeah, we occasionally give tours to uh, groups that are uh, being led by some other organization uh, within the MSI. For instance, we have a Road Scholar Program, which I think was the tour that you saw, uh, and then we have uh, occasionally some other groups coming through. And uh, and then uh, when there are um, uh, you know members of, of the CCA board and so forth that that want to take a look, we'll we'll give them a tour. Jeff does a lot of tours. Yeah, I mean, we for a while we were kind of a little more open, not to the public, but we could do more with schools. But what happened was we uh, started doing some school-type situations years ago, and then we ended up seeing buses pull up out front with <laughs> dozens of kids, and you're just like, oh, we're not set up for this. And it was, yeah. it was just, you know, it's just the way it is. We aren't set up for it. And another thing is you don't want to take 50 – uh, middle school kids through a tank room that you're trying to get fish to yeah, stay calm no, and spawn, as you know. So it got a little overwhelming. I mean, that's just not really the goal. We're not set up for it. So we had to kind of uh, curtail a little bit of that, but we do definitely own, own VIP tours and all that kind of thing. It's just not possible. And the unit, I mean, the headquarters, I mean, here alone. They have a, they, they have they, a visitor center open to the public. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in terms of tours, we only do them by prearrangement, and yeah. we can't do that many because, as Jeff points out, A, we're not, we don't have the personnel to, to take off task to do that. Right. And uh, and then, of course, the potential for ruining experiments by having uh, people disturb the fish. So we have to really limit the numbers and, uh, as I said, only do it by arrangement, prior arrangement. Have there been any any, um, any projects that you haven't been able to get funded that just that you really want to do? I mean, any is there any research you haven't done yet that just – you're really jazzed about doing one day, but you're just hunting for the funding to get it done. Well, yeah, the one I spoke about earlier um, where we had designed this more efficient broodstock management protocol, you know, uh, getting them onto a, an environmentally, this is for redfish, getting them onto an environmentally sustainable diet for X number of months and then shifting them at the last second to or the most opportune time to a, a better diet in order to improve egg quality and then stabilizing them. That We think that's a revolutionary way to uh, manage broodstock if it will work. And so we need to do the experiments to see if it will work. And we've, we've tried to get funding for that and haven't been successful yet, but we'll keep plugging away at it because we think that could really help, for instance, Parks and Wildlife or the other management resource agencies, resource management agencies in Florida and South Carolina and the other, co- other states who are doing similar work. Has, it, has there been much done on the freshwater side with regards to that? For No, I don't you know, think so. I think, th- uh, you know, I got the sense uh, after the presentations I've made at scientific meetings, national scientific meetings on this subject, that, that our findings on Red Drum were pretty novel. Nobody was expecting that you that the diet transfers into the eggs so quickly, and that's the crux of all of this. You know, if the, if the eggs can change quickly, then why not la- wait till the last minute to give them the really good yeah. diet so that you minimize the amount of time you're using those expensive and environmentally not sustainable foods. I think um, I think that's fascinating and it certainly Jeff, I don't know if you were surprised with those findings, but just as working in a hatchery for many years, I would never have thought that you can essentially just have them on a maintenance diet and just throw them something nutrient rich with, with um, DHA and um, what were the other EPA, EPA and, and ARA. ARA. Oh, yeah, I remember. So right at the last minute, you can... Uh, yeah, just, we're thinking it might take a month to go from the dry diet uh, up to um, uh, high-quality eggs. But, you know, maturation diet for one month. I mean, that would be massive savings. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I remember that. I was surprised by that as well because it seemed like it was a lot quicker than I would have yeah. imagined. Yeah, for sure. Another uh, area that we're into... Um, very, very excited about these days, but it's not quite as a, as applied to um, to um, sport fishing or sport fishing related interests as you might guess. But I think it's really important, and that is this whole idea that nutrients transfer to offspring. Yeah, we got that, but uh, it turns out that the composition of the yolk that you can create by manipulating the diet 
looks like it affects the metabolism of the offspring for their entire life. This is really exciting because, yeah. I mean, it's still early days in this research, but it's really exciting because it actually may relate to human health. Let me try to figure that, explain that one okay. to you. There's a syndrome in humans called metabolic syndrome. And what it is is a collection of conditions that appear to be related to the mother's diet in pregnancy. And these conditions are type 2 diabetes, obesity, and some heart disease. All these conditions that are more and more common in, in Western civilization and in well-to-do countries, right? And it comes from the observation that um, mothers who are obese tend to give birth tend to give birth to children who later become obese. And it was used they used to think, well, it must be genetic. It turns out that some of the thinking in the medical field these days uh, is that it's really not genetic, but it has to do with the mother's diet during pregnancy, and that a mother who is obese is that way because she has a diet that that promotes that. But that, that diet that she's getting when she's pregnant is being transferred to her fetus when she's pregnant, or uh, after the baby's born through mother's milk. So the baby's essentially being, is developing on an obese diet. And that changes the metabolism of the baby for the rest of its life. So if mama's slamming Big Macs for nine months <laughs> well, and yes. then beyond. Yes, yes. Wow. And so so what we see in Red Drum is if we create eggs that have high or low amounts of DHA, we find that those offspring, several weeks later, they've been on, no matter whether they came from high eggs or low eggs, we put them on a very good larval diet for three weeks and then we test them in their ability to escape from predators, for instance. And we find that the ones that were on low, uh, the ones who came from eggs that had low amounts of DHA are not as good at performing, f uh, at uh, escaping from predators as the ones that came from high eggs. And then when we looked at the reason why that might be the case, the amount of DHA in their bodies is much lower if they came from eggs that had low DHA than if they came from high DHA. So what that says is, the amount of DHA in the eggs is determining how much DHA they can get out of their own diet. Wow. And that has an effect on their wow. ability to escape from predators. So the, the relationship to stock enhancement is their ability to escape from predators. But if we can understand how the mother's diet, which then gets translated into the amount of DHA in the eggs, affects the metabolism of the offspring, we might be able to figure out how a maternal human diet affects obesity in their offspring. Wow. And we're, I'm and blown and away. And we're using molecular tools right now. We're doing, we're, we're, um, we are um, scanning tens of thousands of genes from larvae that were raised from eggs that had low and high amounts of DHA to see what's the difference between them. I mean, it makes sense if there's physiological problems if if they're if they're nutrient limited the if, if there's something nutrient limited in the, in the yolk i understand that yeah the fish isn't going to develop right because it has some limiting factor but the fact that it can affect that fish's metabolism later in its life or human it's just like i said my mind's blown right now I know. I just, yeah, it's so amazing this is so many implications yeah it's it's hugely exciting to us it's kind of hard to explain it to some people, but it's really, really Well, if exciting. I can figure it out, I think 90% of the population <laughs> yeah. can. So. I'm with you. So, uh, and the idea that it doesn't go away, the effect, yeah. that's really huge. Because if you could say, well, you know, well, you messed a kid up for a month, but then you can supplements or whatever. But it sounds like the effect might be far-reaching. And, I mean, this is huge. Well, that's, you know, the way we figured that out, at least, you know, so far is that we took those larvae and then instead of giving them a good diet, we gave some a good diet and some a bad diet. And we and the good diet couldn't improve the situation for the ones that came from bad eggs. Wow. Yeah. And so this isn't funded yet or, or is partially no, funded? No it's, no, it's not funded yet. So this is just a pet project? We're gathering prelimin enough preliminary data to make it uh, appealing to the funding agents. In fact, I told you we were, we were applying to the National Science Foundation, so we have a, a pre-proposal into them right now, and if they give us the go-ahead, we'll write the full proposal and then oh, know, wow. see if we get I really look forward to hearing more about this. One, yeah, that's a tough one. It, NSF, the National Science Foundation, yeah, is a tough uh, tough nut to crack, but we've done it from time to time in the past, and 
hopefully they'll like it this time. I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. Um, y'all have anything else you want to share? Any, 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 any stories, Jeff, from back oh, in the day? Man, we got some stories. <laughs> Hand, we had a YouTube, YouTube just started when hand feeding that 106 pound ling. Yeah. Did you ever see that one? I it never was, saw that one. I just would, remember the big flounder. The fish would come out. She would, she would come up. We caught this fish, I don't know, 50 pounds more. Anyway, 106. State record's 108, so this was just shy. And it would come out of that 23-foot tank. It would stick its head out of the water several inches and open this gaping mouth, and you would just drop food in the mouth. It's like a group. It was amazing. Head out of the water. I mean, just, they, you know, Langer were really neat to work with, Cobia. Um, and then that big flounder was a unique deal just because uh, any time a flounder gets larger than the state record by quite a bit uh and then what was the size of that flounder it was 13, 13 pounds 11 ounces so right. the state record was 13 pounds or is is 13 pounds rod and reel record now there is an all tackle that's higher i think it's 15 but anyway 13 is the state rod and reel texas for since the 70s i think it's 76 up in sabine sabine yep endicott herb endicott anyway when that one was 13 11 and she expired we talked with Chester Moore, a good friend, who, uh, very interested in flounder stuff, and he arranged a replica to be done uh, by a Fort Lauderdale guy. And it came back. It hangs on our wall, and there's a story below it. And that fish would eat out of your hand, too. She, This 13-pound flounder would swim up, eat out of your hand, and then slowly glide down. And I did watch one time where she, uh, you know, of course, as you know, the males are much smaller. So sometimes you'll have these, you know seven to ten inch males in a tank and i saw her swallow a male one time <laughs> he came up tried to eat and, and she ate him and i see part of his tail sticking out of her mouth and then i watched her for a couple hours and she ended up regurgitating him and oh he, yeah she was just upset. he died later yeah yeah but it was funny to watch one of your big fish in the tank eat one of the smaller fish in the tank and then she she was just fine with it but uh you know just amazing stuff there's a pecking order to the oh, way they yeah. feed yeah. Those there's flounder. definitely a social order in the tank and yeah uh the fish yeah, there's. It's really the ins and outs of all that kind of stuff over the years is really interesting. It's it's so. neat. We I was just talking to um, Doctor Stunts this morning, but it's neat to see the fish feed in the tank and just look at that behavior. Right. And think about that if you're fishing on the water and right. how they're oh, yeah. biting that lure or right. biting that bait. You, you kind of visualize that, and um, you know immediately if you got a trout or a redfish on the line. Right. Just a lot of times, by the way, they bite. So. The snook are amazing. They're out there. We have to, if you want to see them after this, they, of course, are very sedate and lethargic, and they sit in the water and whatever. But when you, when they want to move, as you know, they are like lightning. I mean, they are so fast, and uh, just one of the best sport fish out there. I think a lot of real hardcore fishermen would just love to get uh, a large over-limit snook or somewhere, whether it's here or abroad, because they are caught all over. But it's just an amazing fish. So, but when they decide to move, it's it's pretty impressive underwater like you said so. you know them that will come up to the top the red snapper you can train them to be little puppy dogs yeah. as well yeah They'll come up and right eat at the top yep it's pretty amazing any concluding thoughts dr dr Feeman? do you have any other pearls of wisdom you want to share? <laughs> <laughs> i think i just spit out all my pearls you know, you had some good ones that's yeah. for sure now i'm really glad you came by the chat it's uh, always good to talk to you and and get the word out about the Fisheries and Maricultural Lab to the fishermen around here. Well, I think um, I think this is just a treasure on the Texas coast. And like you said, it's been here for 40 years, and a lot of great work has come out of here. So I think that's uh, going to continue for a, a long time. And um, I'm glad CCA is involved with it to the degree they are and hope that we can continue that relationship. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I agree 100%. I think Texas is in a unique position to continue putting out good data and we uh the great thing is there are several other researchers in the u.s and we collaborate with them and uh collaborate with parks and wildlife and everybody's learning more and doing more and putting more out there and i think like you said it's situated mid-coast and uh we just need to keep the ball rolling whether it's with this you know always with the species we have but you know potentially looking at new species along the way so it's very exciting all right exciting time to work with marine fish in texas thanks guys all, all right. right thanks thank Shane. you thank you